I'm really excited for today's interview with Rahi Charles Chun. He is a somatic sex educator and a sexological body worker. So if you've never heard of those terms before, that's totally okay. We are going to dive into that. The interesting thing about Rahi is if you Googled him, you would find that he is an American actor who's appeared in TV shows like Criminal Minds, Scrubs, Everybody Loves Raymond. There's a lot of different shows that he's been on, but he also came from a prominent Korean family. And so it's an interesting conversation to explore, you know, how do you reconcile your career path with your family expectations? How do you talk about this thing? Sex, sensuality, all of these things that are just not normal conversation. I don't know, maybe for you and your family of origin, but it definitely was not for me. And it's something that I've really aimed to shift and transition in my relationship with my own daughter, where, you know, I work to educate myself so that I know how to encourage healthy development within her, even if it feels awkward for me because, you know, I'm now in my 40s and only now starting to come to a place where I'm embracing who I am, exploring, learning, growing, all of these things that I feel that if I were at a younger age and learned all of these things, that it would have prevented me from getting into some really unhealthy situations relationship-wise, you know, when it comes to sex, compromising myself. I wrote an article for Mind Body Green after I had an experience with a man and the number of emails that I got from that article when it was published were heartbreaking and yet helped me to see how many other women were also in the same boat, in the same position that didn't have the words to express this sense of whether it was being violated or compromising oneself, one's integrity, one's desires, not having the words to stand up, not being able to say no, setting healthy boundaries, all of these things. So I hope that this interview with Rahi is an opportunity for you to start exploring, you know, your story, what might be helpful for you to move forward into the next path of your own journey and your growing phase, and to hopefully illuminate some additional new resources that maybe you didn't know existed. So without further ado, let's dive in and talk about some sexuality, sex, sensuality, and more. Welcome to the Fuck Saving Face podcast. I'm your host, Judy Tsui, and together we'll explore mental and emotional health for Asian Americans, especially breaking through any taboo topics. Life may not always be pretty, but it is indeed beautiful. Let's make your story beautiful today. Welcome back to the Fuck Saving Face podcast. My guest today is Rahi Chen. He's the creator of Somatic Sexual Wholeness and just does remarkable work. But I want to turn it over so that Rahi can explain himself a bit about his story and what it is that he does and how he got to this moment right here. Sure, sure. Thanks, Judy. It's really, really wonderful to be here. Love the idea, concept, platform of the podcast. Mm-hmm. It's something I would have just devoured as a teenager and young adult. So yeah, somatic sexual wholeness, the body of my work, it's really a combination of somatic psychology, the re-regulation of the nervous system, and somatic sex education. And so to put it succinctly, we are repairing the ruptures that occur during the developmental journey of one's sexual embodiment. 
from their childhood through their adolescence, when there's usually boundary ruptures and boundary violations, because all of those things really inform and influence our adult sexual habits, patterns, pleasures, behavior. And kind of the journey of how I got here was, uh, you know, I shared in my bio that I, I came out of my mom's womb with really uh, crooked legs. So rather than being straight, they were mangled based on how I was positioned in her womb. And rather than doing uh, surgery on my infant knees, my mom was a nurse. Mm -hmm. So she said she wanted to just lotion and massage my legs until they grew out straight, which took three years. Mm -hmm. So I was really, I mean, it was a blessing in disguise because I was nourished with this kind of intentional touch the first years of my life. And then I was just very tactile. It was my first language. And then I combined that interest with the interest in how touch heals with meditation in my college years. Mm. So it was this combination of like unconditional presence and intentional touch that seemed to have a powerful healing effect on my partner at the time in my early 20s. And so I just sought out different studies to understand why that was and how that was from different Taoist energy, sexual energy practices for healing to different tantric practices for energy circulation. Along the way, I got a master's in psychology and became trained and certified in a variety of different nervous system re-regulation uh, modalities, and then eventually became a certified somatic sex educator. And that's how kind of it all came together. And how do you culturally identify? I identify culturally as Korean American mm. uh, or Asian American. And one more question, because I think people are going to be curious about this. When you work with clients, what does a session normally look like? Like, is there tactile sure. work or, yeah, energetic work? Yeah. How does it usually go? You know, that's a great question, Judy. And, uh, like, there's such a wide range because it really depends on the level of safety and readiness of the client. So there are some clients who have um, had extreme violation or abuse that they're not ready to receive any tactile touch from a practitioner, particularly a, ma a male practitioner. Mm -hmm. And so we might do all of our sessions that are rebuilding the nervous system without any touch. Now, there are other clients where they come because they want the touch, particularly from a male practitioner. Mm -hmm. So we will do hands-on work from the beginning. But essentially, there are kind of three levels where the first level is really ensuring that the nervous system feels safe in the body again. Mm -hmm. And some of that may involve tactile modalities or non-tactile modalities. But the name of the game is always making sure the body's in charge of the pace and what kind of conditions make it feel absolutely safe and ready. Mm. Yeah. And what, what types of issues would people come seek you out for or what sure. types of, yeah. Sure. I mean, there are a couple of different categories. A lot of it is feeling like their capacity for experiencing sexual arousal and pleasure is limited or contracted in some way mm. or is associated with fear or, mm. you know, some other obstacle. Mm. So that's like one big area. 
Another area is their arousal and pleasure is wired or coupled would be the therapeutic term with unhealthy associations. Mm. So for example, they can only orgasm if they're humiliated mm. or if they're, you know, mistreated, mm. you know, because I mean, generally someone, they, this is, this coupling happens when there's a caretaker that the child loves that mistreats them and it's confusing for the child. And so the child interprets that as love, mm. you know? So, you know, those are some categories. And then Honestly, I have a lot of clients who just have not really had the opportunity to somatically understand the healthy functioning of their erogenous anatomy. Mm. And they want a somatic education around that, you know, mm. a felt sense of what their erogenous zones are designed to do, mm. you know, and this can be a result of you know, a lot of clients may have married their high school sweetheart or their college sweetheart before they've had a real chance to explore fully what their sexual embodiment is about. And then, you know, as we know, you know, especially at that age, you can fall into patterns. Mm. And now 20, 30 years later, they feel like something's missing. Mm. With male clients, it's mostly gay men who have had a lot of shame associated mm. with their identity. And then, you know, there's a smattering of this and that, you know, sometimes mm. it's actually like more physiological stuff, mm. you know, scar tissue healing or traumatic birth that needs, you know, re restoration, mm. you know, things of that sort. You know, as you're talking to before we got into this interview, I mentioned that in your first podcast episode, you're interviewing an expert who shares how vital touch is like touch as a sense organ, as one of the first things that we develop as you know, in the womb. I liked the understanding that you know, a fetus puts their back against the mother's stomach as like mm. a tactile sensation. And that's probably why spooning feels so good, you know, as we mm. come out of the womb. My mother realized at some point, like when I was in college, that she just never touched us growing up. Like it just mm. was like, an, I think any sort of touch was seen as like potentially inappropriate or just like it, it was again, like a luxury, like you, mm -hmm. it just wasn't valued as something important. Whereas, you know, now we understand that touch is so vital and mm. that if we can remove like the shame around mm. so many elements of just basic like primal behavior so you know you also mentioned in that first episode that a fetus there there are photos of you know a fetus in the womb where they're touching their genitalia because it's a pleasure mm -hmm. sense and pleasure is a sure. natural part of being human um mm -hmm. i think that all of that was so fascinating and that you know i think that it's interesting because as we're redefining what it is to be asian in america like when i was teaching yoga and whatnot like i could see that when i put my hands on someone in an adjustment or in Shavasana because I became a Reiki master and did that energetic healing, mm. how people just melted into it. Like the craving for touch and connection yeah. is so deep and vital. Yeah. But what happens when, you know, I think the goal of this podcast and all of these interviews and talking to people like yourself is to demonstrate that there's a whole other realm of possibility that we can mm. step into and mm -hmm. to bring like the best of all cultures into, you know, what there is to offer. So I think totally. your expertise, you know, what would you say about that? Sure. Well, I think touch is, is very much our primal language as a species. Mm -hmm. You know, we're a communal social creature, the human species. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, like in, I mean, that particular uh, teacher who created a body of work called Neuroaffective Touch, touch is her specialty. And something she often says is in the same way that plants naturally lean towards the sun for its its nourishment, human bodies gravitate towards connection mm. and aliveness. That's mm. our nature, mm. you know, and a lot of that connection, of course, it could be intellectual but at our primal when you look at kids they want that physical connection Mm -hmm. you know because as you mentioned it starts in the womb Mm -hmm. you know when our touch receptors are stimulated by the amniotic fluid Mm -hmm. and it continues you know i mean i was fascinated with that interview when aileen shared that you know during vaginal births it's actually the compression Mm -hmm. of the skin is preparing our touch receptors Mm -hmm. for that human touch bonding So, you know, it really shows how human nature, mother nature, really designed our species to be a touch creature. And so, you know, it's really interesting in certain Asian cultures, touch is not, you know, kind of demonstrably, you know, exemplified. And yet I really feel like the more we develop our touch sense, the more we develop our body's intuitive sense of being Mm. able to, you know, listen, you know, uh, via our body, rather than just our intellect. Mm. And so, uh, you know, I think there's a whole kind of realm of, you know, it's it's ironic, because Asian parents are so into like, education in school, (laughs) you know, like, making sure their kids get good grades. And I'm like, man, if you just hug your kids more, they will be so much more wise and intuitive, you know. Um, And so, you know, like, we should re educate Mm -hmm. Asian parents around that. And Mm -hmm. then they're gonna like, divide, they're gonna smother their kids. You know, that's the incentive. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, you know, I think the other thing is like the name of the podcast, Saving Face. There's something around appearance within Mm. so many Asian cultures. And I think there's some, something around like wanting to show your kids are well behaved, you know, or like not, I don't know, well be, but kind of showing off your kids are well behaved. Totally. And and so they're independent. They don't need mommy to touch them or whatever. And so there's almost this, you know, to just demonstrate the opposite that they're, oh, my kids are independent. They're taking care of themselves. And, you know, what gets missed is their touch receptors that are yearning Mm. for this nourishment go unnourished. That's so beautiful. I'm, <laughs> you're right. It is ironic that if we wanted to thrive, yeah. being able to create that like foundational sense of safety would really help <laughs> in Absolutely. achieving all of those goals. Cause if you can't feel safe, you're again in that hierarchy of needs. Like that's what you're focused on. You're just trying to focus on like, what can I do to make myself feel safe in this world around us? I think one of the things that you also talk about, and so I didn't know that pelvic floor massages existed until I had my daughter and then Mm. could no longer use a tampon. It was so uncomfortable. And then because I came back to San Diego Mm. for a visit and a lot of my friends in San Diego are body workers or, you know, holistic practitioners. One of my closest friends said, you know, maybe you should go see Kimberly Ann Johnson, who we both know. She has this business called Magamama. She really works with like the postpartum, the fourth trimester to help you like do a pelvic floor massage. And I was like, oh, oh, what? Like, what is that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So then I didn't know that that was an option and an opportunity to go to see a practitioner who could 
internally massage you. And, mm-hmm. you know, the whole like idea, I was really open to it because I had been a yoga teacher and all of these other things. And then one of my friends recently also who's seen you um, when you were offering in-person sessions before the oh, pandemic, yeah. she had mentioned that you do vaginal mapping and all of these mm-hmm. things are so fascinating to me because these are things that nobody talks about like even Mm. in any culture I feel like it's it's just so unique and remarkable to have friends who are willing to be open in this way but can you talk about what those are for people who don't know Um, sure yeah what kind of work that is like your somatic work Absolutely. So in 2003, the state of California approved a training in the field of sexological body work. Mm. So it's not even, well, it's coming up on its 20th anniversary, essentially. Mm. So it's still relatively new, less than two decades, essentially. And this was done through the Institute for the Advanced Study of Human Sexuality that's based in San Francisco. Mm. It's one of only three institutes that offered PhDs in Mm. uh, human sexuality. So what is it? Well, you know, in the same way that like, you know, if you had frozen shoulder, you would see a doctor and then go to a PT, you know, to work out your shoulder. Of course, we have pelvic PTs, but pelvic PTs and PTs in general are very, their realm of expertise is in realigning unaligned anatomy. Mm. They're not necessarily trained in understanding how the tissues and musculature hold unprocessed emotions Mm. from traumatic experiences. So I mention this because a lot of, you know, Kimberly's work and my work involves addressing unaddressed trauma that's still living in the body. You know, that's a huge part of, it's sad to say, but it's postpartum care really doesn't address that. You know, I mean, OBGYN, you know, one of my best friends is an OBGYN in hospitals. They're very kind of efficiency. And even in your six week follow up checkup, you know, they're not going to really delve into whether the experience was traumatic and how that's being held in the body and all of that. So that's where we come in. So we're kind of a in between, between like your psychotherapist who's really brilliant at cognitive understanding and a you know, essentially a somatic sex educator who understands not only the functionality of the anatomy of the body, but also, you know, ideally, I say ideally because not all sexological body workers are trained in uh, in in-depth trauma, but Kimberly and I are, understanding, you know, how to hold a safe space for the unprocessed emotions from a traumatic incident to feel safe, to come up and be felt. And when it's felt and re- and expressed, that's when it releases from the body, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's in the form of scar tissue or really just held muscle that doesn't know it's safe to let go. Yeah. I mean, I think that just to back up a little bit for anyone who, you know, maybe hasn't done yoga training or like really participated in um, linking the body mind, the fact that our bodies hold emotions I used to say, you know, if you do a lot of hip openers in yoga, you might find yourself like flooded with emotion suddenly. Um, I've definitely cried in pigeon pose and you're mm. not sure where it's coming from. But that's an example of how your body does hold on to all of this. And I think that when you and I first talked before this interview, you had mentioned that you've seen so much incredible progress happen in being able to develop sensation again in parts of your body that you may not had it in so long or just to feel 
safe in exploring what pleasure can be mm-hmm. um, because of the trauma that we've experienced. And that could be trauma with a lowercase t or an uppercase t. So you and I talked about how, or in your interviews, you, you mentioned that, um, you know, as a woman comes of age and she begins to menstruate or whatever, how different people respond to her can create certain types of trauma or how, you know, when you're young and you discover mm. your genitals and you start enjoying yourself without, you know, the sense of pleasure being right or wrong, if mm-hmm. there's a, an external force that all of a sudden judges you that that's not okay, it impacts your trajectory of like sexuality and sensuality into adulthood. Can you speak a bit about that? Yeah. See, this is actually where I think we as children can easily take on the unresolved issues around sexuality from our parents, Mm. right? Because like, you know, if I'm a child and let's say whether it's in the States or in in an Asian country where sexuality is repressed, the way my caretaker changes my diapers or cleans my genitalia or potty trains me Mm. or, you know, I mean, like I had a new client uh, started seeing last week from an Asian country mm-hmm. and her mother would call her genitalia shame, shame. Mm. Right. So mm. imagine the so whether it's explicit like that, you know, in words or in behavior, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, the genitalia is like avoided as if it's dirty, shameful you know, not to be talked about, not to be, because the absence of talking about your genitalia, I think sends a, a you know, a strong oh, message as well. Absolutely. So, you know, here we are as children and we're just sponges. I mean, we're just, you know, when a kid's too, it's so fun because they're just repeating everything they hear. <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, they're so adorable and, and they're learning, you know, their parents' level of anxiety or like, repulsion or avoidance around sexuality and genitalia as well. So, you know, those of us from Asian countries where the Asian culture, you know, was very repressive, we're just picking that up as kids. Mm -hmm. And then when we are menstruating and the way our parents respond, whether it's a celebration or something to be hidden, Mm -hmm. you know, that sends a powerful message about the power of your sexuality Mm -hmm. and whether it's accepted or not. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, all of these things are really, really powerful. And something I, you know, I'm fascinated to explore with my clients always is these initial imprints, because oftentimes our subsequent experiences or explorations of our sexuality, whether it's in our teenage years, during puberty or our young adult years, are built on that foundational imprint, mm-hmm. you yeah. know. So it is a powerful message. and. You know, because it goes to, you know, the message for the child is, oh, I want my parent to love me. I don't want them to avoid me. So I'm going to do what they like, you know, and if that's to treat my genitalia in the way they're treating it, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. I mean, for my daughter, who's now six, I feel like she discovered her body at a very young age. And I was shamed so badly. I can still remember like the moment, you know, and like what my mom said was like, what are you doing? You know, just like, that's so gross. Like you better stop doing that. So immediately that was like imprinted on my mind. So with my own daughter, when my ex-husband and I started noticing that she was like enjoying, you know, her own physical self, 
we totally made sure that she had the opportunity and the freedom to explore without any mm. shame, but also having healthy boundaries, you mm-hmm. know, put on it as she aged of like, you know, what can you do in a public space? What can you do in a private space? There's a an Instagram account and like a, a business called Sex Positive Families. They're mm. based in Austin, Texas. And everything that they share is so fascinating to help raise healthy children who know what the difference between like uh, safe experiences are, who know, you know, how to be able to handle their physical bodies, how to know how to have healthy boundaries with Mm -hmm. other adults, like what's being encroached upon. Mm. So for anybody who has children, that's a really great, you know, opportunity to explore that. But I think that all of those imprints get you know, they're stored somewhere. (laughs) And so as we move into adulthood, as we want to have, ideally, I mean, I hope that anybody who's listening to this podcast wants to have like really remarkable, connective sexual experiences. How do we start moving into that healing realm? Or, you know, what do we need to start becoming aware of so that we can Mm become like the adults Mm. that we want to be even if we didn't have the prime opportunities growing up whether it was in our households or even in our education yeah well first of all a tribute to you and your your ex-husband to to have that consciousness Mm. in raising your daughter because i mean it's going to be night and day like Mm. i mean just she knowing that it's you know, that there are boundaries and that her, she can celebrate all parts of her body Mm -hmm. is going to have her embodiment be of a different quality. Mm -hmm. So she can listen to the intelligence Mm -hmm. of her, you know, vagina, you know, because I mean, the whole body is intelligent, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not just the, just not just the brain. So that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, But Judy, I think what you're providing for your daughter is a really great example of what Mm -hmm. we as adults can do with ourselves, Mm -hmm. which is, I mean, the first thing is really giving ourselves the permission and the space to become intimate with our own sexuality, because that is really where it starts. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I really encourage clients like, you know, with the absence of sex, accurate sex education, and the shame around masturbation or self self pleasuring, I think those are really areas which are great areas to start for anyone. Mm. You know, start exploring your body and as if it's like a country you're just visiting for the first time, you know? And if you've always, you know, if you're a guy, if you've always just gone for your shaft and your frenulum, you know, exploring other parts, mm. you know, and in different ways. So it's like we can get so used to certain patterns and the body is so malleable and the neuroplasticity of our body brains are so malleable that we can develop and discover new sensorial pleasure and arousal really in anywhere in our body. So once we do that with our own body and, you know, for for women or, or vulva owners out there, there's a book by Sherry Winston and it's called Women's Anatomy of Arousal. And I mm-hmm. recommend it to all my clients. It's like the, one of the best books out there for female arousal. You know, for penis owners, there are books like <laughs> The Ultimate Prostate Guide, for example, if you've never explored the, prost- the pleasure of your prostate. You know, guys have to know you can separate orgasm from ejaculation. You can have a prostate-induced orgasm that is like out of this world compared to a penis-induced climax. But that involves really having... One, giving yourself the permission mm. to really explore yourself 
frankly, I, I think the way we all wanted to as kids, really, you know, it's just natural because as kids, you know, when you see a kid that's like one, two years old, they're exploring like, can I jump off of this chair? Can I, what is, you know, what does my toe taste like? I mean, they're just so sensorial. They're exploring everything. And then when you look at the nature of parenting, of course, we have to, you know, keep them safe, but there's so much don't do this, don't do that. And that's where, you know, things get interrupted. Mm -hmm. But I think our nature is we want to explore all of ourselves, you know, from every sphincter, every kind of sense, every, and if you consider, a lot of the terrain of our bodies and our senses in the in the erogenous arena has not been fully explored. So to start exploring that for yourself, and then you'll know what to ask for when you're with a partner, and then you can really explore each other in new and fascinating ways and continue to give yourselves permission and discover new realms of arousal, pleasure, and embodiment. Mm, I love. So that's kind of a yeah kind of a long-winded answer, but essentially it starts with ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, self-exploration uh, and self-understanding. So both anatomically as well as like giving yourself the permission. I mean, yeah. One of my friends gifted me the book, uh, Come As You Are, which is fascinating because, you know, she's debunking mm-hmm. a lot of myths about what you think you know, if you get aroused, do you need to be wet? Like all of these things that I think are just so, just even reading it and understanding, oh, a lot of the cultural nuances that I learned from, you know, friends conversation, like maybe that wasn't fully accurate. And, and I think this podcast doesn't have time for it, but the whole exploration of sexuality and sensuality with a partner is like a whole you know, other situation yeah. and like the trust and the dynamic that that involves. I know I remember when I had dinner with a bunch of girlfriends, I think it was for my birthday, and I totally made their jaws drop because I think I asked the question of like, what have you not like, you know, told anybody else? Or what's something that's like interesting? Mm. And I mentioned when I was pregnant, I was so sick, just I had hypermesis gravidarum, I was like nauseous the whole entire time. When people asked me what the experience was like, I was like, well, just imagine the worst hangover you've ever had in your entire life for almost a year, like just 24 seven, like that's what it felt like. And then Mm. once I explain it like that, they're like, Oh, that sounds terrible. I'm like, yeah, it was the worst. So Mm. I tried every single remedy that there was that was recommended to me from like ginger and pressure points and essential oils and all the things, nothing worked. And the one thing that worked was self-pleasure and watching porn. And when I said that to the ladies, they were like, wait, what? Mm. (laughs) And I couldn't explain why, because I didn't have the science behind it, but Mm. there was something about it. And it must've been like a very, you know, primal, visceral release of pleasure sensation to combat the complete extreme, utter, like, I was a non-functional human being. That's how sick I was. And then, you know, I didn't talk about that for a really long time. I talked about it with like my husband at the time. Mm. But beyond that, I didn't really talk about it because it was weird <laughs> like to think that that was the remedy until mm. I started just embracing it more. And then also this other mom whose name also happened to be Judy. She um, has a daughter who has my same birthday. She is like a mother, like 20 years ahead of me, mm. but she, we were... I was breastfeeding and I remember her saying something to me as she was sitting next to me. We were in a writing group together and she said, 
does it ever feel like sexual, like, or like the, that sensation? And nobody had talked about that with me either. Mm. There were so many things about becoming a parent or what happens to your body that nobody talks about, but like that also, you know, and like, I wish that there were more conversations like that because Mm. I think it removes so much of the stigma and the guilt and the shame around just normal humanity. (laughs) Absolutely. See, I think this is where like, I think in Europe there, I'm guessing there are more conversations like this Mm -hmm. amongst, you know, amongst moms, you know, Mm -hmm. and yeah, it's just human bodily functions, you know, and yeah, of course, I mean, sex is a healing energy. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that, I mean, there are 13 hormones and chemicals that are released during arousal and pleasure that are healing to the body. Mm -hmm. So when you are feeling like you've got a hangover 24 seven, yes, it is going to be beneficial. And Mm -hmm. that's something that you know, I feel like sex in the wet in America, in the US has become so sensationalized, you know, like when it's just kind of just like a flower, you know, natural, naturally blossom. It's so just so natural, you know, mm. but yeah, that's great that you discovered that. How wonderful. <laughs> yeah. How really, really great. I think it's so natural. I mean, when you're breastfeeding or I mean, come on, we're just sexual beings, Mm. you know, and I think a a lot of, you know, what we do is actually unnatural. When you look at indigenous societies and how whole families sleep together, you know, I mean, the Eskimos for body warmth or things like that, the Native Americans, you know, I think that's actually natural, Mm -hmm. you know, and so, yeah, so much of our sexual nature is just like nature. I love that. (laughs) I'm going to put that on a quote. <laughs> so much of our sexual nature is just nature. I wanted to ask you too, because I had mentioned before we got on this call that I was referring your business to a friend of mine. And when I was Googling you, um, your IMDB came up. <laughs> and mm. so I wanted to talk about, you know, the aspect that you mentioned of the two different career paths that you've chosen, how they're both like very non-traditional when it comes to, you know, being Asian American. One of them was going into film and television and becoming an actor. And then the other one, is doing this um, somatic work. Can you talk about what that experience was like? Yeah, sure. So, you know, when it comes to like fuck saving face, uh, you know, it, it was more relevant as far as like my family or my parents' response when I was kind of like right out of college and, and chose kind of like declared, it wasn't a conversation. I declared to my parents that I was going to pursue a career as an actor mm. And, you know, to any now, now I'm old enough to understand to anyone who's, who's kind of worked so hard to immigrate to the U S to educate their kids and give them all these opportunities, you know, and especially where back home being an actor was like a step above prostitution, essentially, Mm. you know, um, Sandra O talks about this a lot, you know, (laughs) you know, it just didn't land very well, you know, because they, you know, their whole drive was security. Mm. I mean, my dad's a professor, super secure. My mom's a nurse, super secure. I mean, they went for the, you know, that was the priority was secure, financial security. So, you know, the acting field is anything but that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I just had to navigate that. But I was kind of the rebel in the family and my older, I have an older sister who's two years older and she was kind of the one who did everything my parents wanted. Mm. And you know, did save face essentially, mm-hmm. went to all the right schools mm-hmm. and 
got the right degrees and all that kind of stuff. And so it kind of took some heat off of me, frankly. Mm. But even so, it's uncool to have that weight on your shoulder. Uh, let's put it this way. To be an actor starting out or to start out in any profession that's non-traditional, quote unquote, where there aren't a lot of role models, you know, for Asian Americans, for example, it, it's hard enough. Mm -hmm. On top of that, to have kind of like knowing that your parents sacrificed as immigrants to, you know, had to have that on your shoulders. It, it, it's almost you can easily go into a guilt trip, mm -hmm. you know, and like I see my friends when I was in my 20s who didn't come from Asian American families where, you know, their parents were like, go for it, you know, or like it was just more not so uncommon let's say mm -hmm. you know i mean when i was growing up i could i could count the asian american actors on one hand essentially you know it was pat morita from happy days <laughs> and you know i mean obviously bruce lee but mm -hmm. you know like that's two people essentially you know? <laughs> yeah and so that was way more of a factor but then you know as i started getting some small roles in big studio films and you know got to be a working actor it just kind of alleviated their mm. worries and i came to realize oh they just want what's best for me mm. they don't want me to starve essentially now when i switched from acting to somatic sexual healing work by that time my dad had passed mm. To be honest with you, I considered it when my dad was alive, but I, I held off because my dad had a gov. You know, he was kind of a high-ranking uh, position in the Korean government, and I just thought in my head, if some scandal broke out oh. that his son was, you know, doing something sexual, it just, and so, you know, that's kind of another weight on the shoulder that's yeah. not necessary, you mm -hmm. know. So I think there are these little things that. You know, I mean, honestly, I think as an Asian American, we have these unspoken kind of weights, mm -hmm. you know, in some situations, whether it's the fact that the mainstream isn't used to seeing an Asian American as a mayor of a city or as a whatever, you know, as a first whatever, you know, is kind of one of those things. But the switch to doing the somatic sexual work was much easier because by then my mom was pretty chill about mm. anything I did. And, and you know, and my, my dad had already passed away. Mm. And how do you, I mean, what's the reception now as you being an Asian American male in this field? Well, you know, it's interesting, Judy. I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not that sure what the, like how being Asian American and being a sexological body worker like plays into it. My guess is that, you know, the Asian American male in mainstream America is almost like the invisible man, mm -hmm. you know, like there's not a lot out there, you know, like there's a lot of stereotypes with about Asian American women, you know, or Asian women as the sexualized, you know, geisha girl or whatever, dragon lady, you know, all that kind of stuff. But for the man, it's kind of invisible. And I think... In some ways, maybe there's like a sense of safety, mm. you know, because most of my clients are women and mm. safety is like a, such an integral part of the work that I do, you know, almost non-threatening, mm. you know, but as well, kind of like non-sexual or, emas you know, emasculated in a way, you know, which is uncool in mainstream society when it comes to my work. 
Yeah, it's really odd because, I mean, it is my field of expertise. And yet, I think maybe being like the invisible man makes it a little safer, mm. you know, especially because like I've got Buddhas on my wall and I'm Asian. So people feel like, oh, <laughs> I just, you know, light some incense and they think they're in some temple in Bali or whatever. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, you know, <laughs> but uh yeah, I, I think I don't I don't think it is a hindrance. Let's put it mm. that way. Yeah, that was the question that I was going to ask you next is your experience as an Asian American male. And so I think that's really interesting that you've been able to, you know, kind of cultivate it in a way that it works to your favor in this line of work that you do. But I think um, I was listening to an interview with John Cho, and he was saying, and I'd never heard it expressed this way before, but that um, Asian American men walk around with fists in their pockets because of how mm. angry they are at being like emasculated or just like, as you said, like an invisible man. And mm. so in your other experiences, and because you're the first Asian American male I've interviewed on this podcast, you know, I kind of wanted to lend a voice to, I have a lot of Asian American male friends who often say like, there's just no one talking about it. It's no one like, mm. and then, you know, what that experience has been like for you and what you would like to share about that. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So the Asian American male, I do think is invisible in our, in mainstream kind of consciousness. And I think that's, I think that's uncool. And I think it's a disservice. Obviously, it's almost like coming to a, a big dinner table and there's no chair there, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, I think part of it is because like, you know, when people talk about minorities in general, a lot of times it's focused on, you know, black and brown communities, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and I think in a lot of ways, Asians are kind of excluded from a lot of conversations, mm -hmm. you know, but in kind of media and I don't know, kind of the at least Asian American females are acknowledged, you know, in some way, you know, and you know, it's, it is interesting. I mean, growing up in mostly predominantly white communities, I was quiet. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't feel like, I, you know, it's like there's a self-consciousness that I had that I was different. Mm -hmm. And that if I said something, you know, like, would it be perceived as like me speaking, you know, as an Asian American person? Am I speaking for the Asian American community? You know, like that kind of a thing, you know, when the situation got political, let's say. And, you know, again, that's like a, a, a burden that, you know, my mainstream white friends never had. Don't even know it exists, really, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. It's like this double life, you know, that I referred to earlier, that, that it's like a sensitivity that we have around an awareness of being a minority, and so, you know, I think like Jeremy Lin is an NBA uh, a professional basketball player, and he was overlooked, even though his numbers were, you know, like uh, warranted him getting picked up by all these teams. Like, you know, was it because he was Asian American? I would say, yeah, you know, because people weren't used to seeing an Asian American basketball player. So you could say that, you know, I think, you know, when I see a politician who's Asian American running for governor or, you know, like in Washington state or like, you know, a mayor. I, I realized, oh, my God, I really haven't seen these two things together. You know, like Andrew Yang's running for New York, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mayor now, you know, and his ideas are fantastic. But people kind of have to kind of like 
adjust and be like, oh, okay, an Asian American mayor. Okay, okay, I, I can see that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's like other people don't don't run into that at all. Mm. You know, so I think that's where like, I mean, John, I mean, of course, like he's he's a leading man. You know, I mean, if he if he was an actor in Korea, he'd be getting all these offers left and right. But here, you know, whether it's Stephen Yeun or or I just saw Minari recently mm. or John Cho, you know, it's really I mean, frankly, like, you know, I was a working actor for 25 years and my whole first kind of decade of work, the roles I was playing were kind of invisible in the story. Mm. You know, I was like the nondescript doctor or the nondescript Mm. cop, you know, like not someone who stood out, let's say. Mm. And I think that's kind of, you know, we don't stand out in society. And so I think it takes like a little adjustment for society to adjust to us in a certain role let's say i really like that you're reflecting upon that sorry to interrupt that the idea of it does take your brain a minute to be like oh oh yeah that could work or like oh that that makes sense or you know just however it is i i think i just read an article about jeremy lynn saying like you know the racism that he experiences on court that like that's never reported you know nobody talks about that that John Cho interview, he was saying if he could make any movie whatsoever, it would be like a mass killing, like, you know, army thing. And because of like just that anger and that rage, he just wants to show a different role that an Asian American male can play. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not going to be that behind the scenes or like smaller kind of voice. One of the interviews that I did for this podcast as well is with a children's author and it's Amy Wu and the Perfect Bow. And it was great Mm -hmm. because, you know, it represented this cultural nuance, but she also said that she didn't want to do it for like a heavy handed topic. She just wanted to do something that was like just normal. Just can we just make it normal? It doesn't have to Mm -hmm. be like a big deal. And I really liked that approach of being able to have these conversations so that we can just normalize so many things and they don't have to be like a weird, awkward thing that you're saying where your brain has to do an adjustment to understand that that's a possibility. And they've done studies about this before, but that, you know, children need to be able to see themselves in different media so they can recognize what's possible. Um, So if you don't think it's probable, then you're probably not going to think it's possible. So, you know, yeah, yeah, being able to have that. And so ideally, we have- Yeah, to have these conversations so that we can then just normalize everything so that it can just like be a non thing now that, you know, we are better represented that um, I love the movement now with the stop Asian hate where the, you know, black community is rising up to support the Asian community and vice versa. One of the interviews that I did was also with a woman who's half black, half Asian, because that is like, you know, yes, it's very, that's exactly the same response that I had because growing up as an Asian American, you know how charged those like two ethnicities can be against each other, especially Mm. if you grew up in LA where you saw the race riots that happened, Mm -hmm. the Korean and black communities. So I think that it's a wonderful thing that we're moving towards. Um, There's also, you know, a lot of work that needs to be done. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you were able to, you know, have this idea of fuck saving face, like what's one thing that you would really like for someone to know about, reflect upon, consider? Mm. Okay. So, you know, I have a friend who's a hospice nurse. So she works with people who are at the end of their lives, essentially. And I think she shared, I'm pretty sure it came from her, this article. They never regret what they did. They all regret 
what they did not do mm -hmm. in their lives, you know? The things that they really yearned or wanted or dreamed of doing that they gave themselves excuses to hold back or avoid or not do. You don't want to be on your deathbed and be in that situation. And you cannot let, you know, an excuse, whether it's being Asian or be, you know, you know, just you can't, you know, you've, I mean, kind of the cool thing, the flip side of, of this is like, be the first, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, my God, like, I've always been the first something, you know, <laughs> like in school or, you know, like I founded the first Asian American students, you know, what, like whatever it was, like, be the first and, and do it, mm. you know, because you don't, you don't want to be on that deathbed and have any regrets. Mm. So that's what I would really implore all the fuck saving face listeners mm. is, you know, really listen to what your heart's yearning is. Why are you here on this planet? Mm. You know, the Tibetans say it's such a privilege to reincarnate. You know, I mean, whatever your religious beliefs are, I mean, let's say it took just enormous whatever to reincarnate in this lifetime. Here's your shot, man. You know, mm -hmm. like do what's in your heart, what you're here to do. Mm. You know, really listen for what that is and do it. I love that you said that. I'm working on a book right now, a small publishing house, and it's about the five Tibetans. And I started mm. diving into Tibetan Buddhism and the way that it's explained, you know, like in this idea of reincarnation and rebirth, there's like three higher realms, three lower realms, and there's a human realm. And yes, being a god or a goddess might seem like it's all great, but there's like such envy and jealousy there. Or like in the lower realms, like, yeah, it might be a lot of suffering, but the human existence is the only place where you can experience the magic of like transformation and the magic of being able to, you know, shift your realities and create those experiences. And I loved that idea because I think that so often we get stuck in the human condition and we think that it's a lot of suffering or trying to attain this or trying to do that. And we lose the sense of the magic that there is. Mm -hmm. And in a society and a culture that, you know, whether it's the Asian culture telling you like, this is what success is and this is how you grow up or the American culture, which is like, you got to, make the money and have the house and like do mm. all those things. There's all these external circumstances and forces on you telling you what happiness is supposed to be, but that if you can pursue your own path. So like what you did with the work that you did becoming an actor and then doing the sexual somatic work and all the impact that you're able to have in like helping people heal, you know, on these journeys and experience that like deep pleasure sensations or like, or just even healing trauma all of that is so remarkable and beautiful because you have that unique experience that at the end of your life, as you were talking about, you'll have all these stories and these memories and these moments where it will be a life fully lived instead mm -hmm. of, well, I did everything everybody told me and yep. then I'm still here. <laughs> like, yep. what? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's a, I mean, it is a challenge for a lot of like children of immigrants to have the, you know, privilege or the burden of their parents' unfulfilled dreams, you know, but, you know, find a way where you can, you know, kind of honor their dreams, but really honor your soul's purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think that what you said, I wanted to go back to that as well is, yes, it is in some ways a luxury to be able to take that time and space to explore these parts of yourself, especially if you've come from, you know, parents who've sacrificed everything. Like as we've grown into adulthood, now I can see what a sacrifice for someone else is and like how to 
navigate that. But I think it's also powerful to remember that we are at like the cutting edge of our lineage. And so we get to be the turning Mm. point and the healing for everything that we want to carry forward for like the next generation. So that's such a remarkable experience. And it does require like, you know, as hard as it's been, it does require a certain amount of consciousness and luxury for me to be able to say, I don't want to create that burden for my daughter. So I've done the self work that it's required to, you know, make sure that I'm a responsible adult taking, you know, caring for another soul. Not everybody has that. So I think in your healing trauma work as well, just to see, you know, the burdens that we've carried that have come through because the people before us didn't have the opportunities to do that. So healing work, when we heal ourselves, it really is like, so incredible to heal so many people and create that positive ripple effect. Yeah, it really, I mean, you know, they say when we heal ourselves, it ripples seven, I think seven or nine generations forward and seven or nine generations back. Um, But yeah, yeah. But you are definitely freeing it up for your daughter and the future generations big time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And so if people want to follow up with you, I know that you mentioned, you know, as the pandemic is hopefully (laughs) moving to more manageable states, how can people follow you or potentially if they want to work with you in the future, where can they go? Sure. So the best thing is to go to the website, which is somaticsexualwholeness.com. And you can also access the podcast through Organic Sexuality Podcast. Dot com. And those are the best ways to get in touch with me. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Rahi. It's been so wonderful connecting with you. Yeah. It's been great you. for me too, Judy. It's been <laughs> a pleasure. Yeah. Again, I really love, I think the podcast is awesome and I, I hope it spreads far and wide. Thank you. Okay. So I know that was a long awaited interview. I mentioned it to several friends and posted it on social media and everybody was very excited about this conversation and this topic. So I would love to hear what you got out of it. Please email me at hello at fuck saving face. That's FCK. And let me know what you thought as well. If you want to go to the website and make a single donation to support us, that would be great. If you want to go make a regular ongoing contribution, you can go to patreon.com forward slash fuck saving face FCK. And I look forward to seeing you next week and exploring more taboo topics. 